Our scripture reading today is coming from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and verse 48. This is found on page 810 and 811 in the Pew Bible. If you guys don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us. The scripture reads, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before we take some time and look at this passage of scripture together, I want to take a minute and, uh, and pause and pray and ask for God's help uh, as he um, speaks to us through his word. We believe that the Bible isn't just a, a book about history, but it's a book that um, God is, is speaking in and through uh, to us today. And so let's ask for him to do that for us this morning. Father in heaven, I'm grateful that you speak to us through your word, that it's living and active, that it is not just a book from the past, but that it's a book that you continue um, to speak in and through um, uniquely by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray now that your spirit would be at work in our hearts so that we could see Jesus more clearly and glorify the Father who is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think that one of the, the greatest myths that exists about Jesus is that he makes life easier. That one of the greatest myths that exists about Jesus is that he makes life easier. Um, because the truth is, and I, I think we're going to see it pretty vividly in this passage this morning, is that Jesus actually makes everything harder than we thought. Also better, but harder. Um, he makes it harder, but better than we think. And, and you see many people, whether they are Christians or not, view Jesus as sort of lowering the bar, relaxing those harsh Old Testament standards, those strict rules that that angry, strict God put down. So we kind of think of this Old Testament God as being angry and, and having all these rules, but then Jesus comes along and, and he's all about love and acceptance and tolerance. But what we find is when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is some of Jesus' most well-known, some of his most um, popular teaching, most familiar teaching, is that far from lowering the bar or relaxing the standards, Jesus is actually telling us that we're the ones who have lowered the standards, not him. And so if you're a Christian, I think we tend to think that, that Jesus gets us off the hook, that he, that he lowers the bar to sort of just don't hurt anybody or do anything super wrong and it'll be okay. And, and even if you do, then of course there's forgiveness available. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you assume that Jesus really uh, just taught that we ought to, to love one another, to stop judging each other, and sort of to be nice. And, and he did teach all those things, but we sort of leave it there and boil it down to just don't really hurt anyone or do anything super wrong and you'll be okay. You see, every one of us has a code of conduct that we live by, a set of rules that we try to live by most of the time. And, and if we do, we feel like we're living okay. Because besides, you know, we've got a good heart after all. 
But we're natural born legalists. No, no matter your faith situation, uh, this is how we live life. And legalism always lowers the standard to something we can do to justify ourselves. So we say, well, I've, I've never murdered anyone. So yeah, I'm, I'm a decent person. We point to things that we do or don't do as evidence to convict us of being a good person, of living a good life. But Jesus makes everything harder because Jesus sees through all of those do's and don'ts, the things that we do or don't do, to our heart. And in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses two questions that people throughout history have asked, and that is, first, what is the truly good life? And secondly, who is a good person? What's the good life and who is a good person? And Jesus makes it clear that the problem that we have to solve is the problem of our hearts, what's inside this, this sort of constellation of our will, our emotion, our desires, where we make decisions, all of that make up this biblical idea of the heart. And you see, grace, the grace that Jesus brings is not about lowering the standard, but it's about transforming us into the kinds of creatures who actually love the right things and they're therefore able to do the right things. So here's what grace looks like. It looks like love. It looks like righteousness and, and rules if it was only so simple as keeping a set of rules, right? Because listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And if you skip down, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, Jesus says, and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were two groups of, of religious leaders, of religious um, kind of a religious elite in that day. And if you're a Christian, maybe you've heard uh, about the scribes and the Pharisees, and it tends to be pretty negative what we think about them. But if you lived in the first century and you heard about the scribes and the Pharisees, you knew them as kind of the exemplary people in your community. I mean, they were the kinds of people who you would say, I want to leave my kids with them. Or if I'm going to do business, they're the kinds of people who are absolutely trustworthy. They were respected people. And they were masters of rulemaking. They had rules for their rules. They obsessively concerned about saying the right thing, doing the right thing, looking a certain way. And you couldn't look better than they did. And here's the thing. Rules in themselves aren't bad. But the scribes and Pharisees, they forgot that the most important thing is in here, this, the heart, the constellation of will and desires and emotion that guides our lives. And so you see in this passage, Jesus isn't changing the rules. He's just closing our loopholes. He's simply showing us where the problem actually lives, which is inside of our heart. He's clarifying what the rules have always been about rather than what we've sort of reduced them to be. And he uses six examples in this passage to show us how we have done this. And the first example he uses is the example of anger. 
I had a professor in seminary who, uh, it was one of the first days of class, looked out and said, um, it was a counseling class, he says, most of you in here today are angrier than you think you are. Most of you are angrier than you think you are. And I confess that in the years since I took that class, I've realized how true that really is in my own life. I mean, it's amazing, right, how quickly a boundary-testing toddler or a stubborn boss or difficult client can send us into an inferno of anger, an anger that says, it's on, and I'm going to end you. This is over. Comedian John Mulaney talks about this in uh, one of his comedy specials, and he talks about as a kid watching America's Most Wanted. And he says, I, I would watch America's Most Wanted as a kid and think, how could another human being kill another human being? He says, and then I grew up and someone cheated on me. And I thought, oh, okay. I totally get it. I'm not going to do it, but I totally get it. Because we've all been there, right? I mean, we're not going to do it, but we totally get it. I mean, but we're good people. Um, you know, I, I've never murdered anyone ever, so, so good for me, right? Jesus says this, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I don't think it's accidental either that Jesus uses the language of brother here. He wants us to think back through the stories of the Old Testament to the very first murder, which was a brother murdering a brother, Cain and Abel. Right after Adam and Eve fall into sin, their first two children, one of them murders the other. You've heard it said that anger and rage are fine as long as they're on Facebook. But Jesus says when it comes to your heart, Anger and rage will condemn you to hell just as fast as if you had murdered someone. And look, white Midwesterners are ridiculously polite people. And if you're from a different cultural background or if you're from a different part of the country, uh, you, you know this, right? And it can actually probably be frustrating because they, I, will be over the top nice and polite and deferential even when we're thinking something completely different. And feeling the exact opposite. Uh, things that you would never say to a classmate uh, somehow slip out when they're, they're not listening. And, and it's true. Some of us are just bullies at home and at work. But other of us, there's, there's things that we would never dream of saying to another human being that we're happy to put into our Facebook feed. So listen, by Jesus' standards, I am a murderer. I mean, no, I, I've never actually taken someone's life Jesus is smarter than that. But I've murdered people's reputations, self-respect, joy. There are times when I've killed a friend's feelings, my wife's compassion, when I've destroyed someone else's day. And sure, it's, it's not murder, murder, but murder lives here. Hey, but at least 
At least I haven't killed anyone, right? Next up, Jesus turns to another example, the example of lust. And this probably more than any of the other examples seems the least plausible to us. I mean, haven't we as a culture finally moved beyond calling lust a sin? Um, author Christopher Ryan, speaking about this in his book, Sex at Dawn, The Prehistoric Origins of Modern Sexuality, uh, he, says, he says, look, there, there's nothing wrong with my marriage that my wife thinks about other people and I think about other people. Lust isn't harmful. And how can we tell someone not to lust? I, I think a lot of us resonate with that. But lust, this, this sense of, of indulging in sexual desire for someone who isn't your spouse, who you're not married to, that, that look that lingers, the, the fantasy that you replay, websites you visit, trashy novels, as well as, as sex outside of marriage, um, it, it actually isn't harmless. And I've, I've failed here too. When, when I was younger, I used to think, well, once I'm out of high school or college, this will, will somehow get easier or when I'm married, Right? It doesn't. But I've never had an affair, and, and I've not even gotten close, so I'm in the clear, thankfully. Enter Jesus. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, you've heard it said, how it's, it's just maxim. That's ah, it's 50 shades of gray. We're just hooking up. What's a little erotic fantasy, harmless relaxation? But Jesus says it's the same as adultery. Lust isn't harmless because lust is always selfish and it always bends us in on ourselves. Lust makes sexual pleasure all about me. Philosopher Rebecca DeYoung writes this. She says, lust is a party for one. It's a self-gratification project, and when we lust, we certainly want nothing to do with giving life and the future commitment that might bring. I want pleasure now, says the lustful one, and I want it on my terms. And over time, slowly and perhaps even indistinguishably at first, lust turns us into the sort of people who view others as objects for our own use. Not as fellow image-bearing human beings, but, but tools for our own ends. And you can't, as much as you might try, you can't compartmentalize that into one part of your life. It spills over into everything else. It affects the way you review, you view and relate to people long after you've closed the book, the magazine, or the web browser. Which is why Jesus takes it so seriously. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. See, Jesus isn't messing around. And, and he is using hyperbole here, so no one go home and cut anything off. But he's saying don't miss the point. This will kill you. It isn't harmless. Frederick Buechner, writing of lust, says this. He says, who's to say who gets hurt and who doesn't and how? Maybe all the injuries are internal. Maybe it will be years before the x-ray shows anything. 
Maybe the only person who gets hurt is you. But hey, at least, at least I didn't have an affair. Next up, divorce. Believe me yet that Jesus makes everything harder. Now, divorce, Jesus is going to elaborate on this one quite a bit more in Matthew chapter 19, and so we'll spend more time looking at that when we get to Matthew chapter 19. So something to look forward to uh, coming up. And, and here's what Jesus is saying, though, here. He says, you've heard it said that if you fall out of love, if you can't seem to work it out, if you get a little bored or you grow apart or you grow to hate one another, then just end it and repeat the pattern with someone else. But I say to you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And yes, there are times when divorce is permissible, but they are few and far between. Why divorce is such a big deal, you see, is because marriage exists to show us how God loves his people. Uh, even when we don't get along, even when we run from him. And over and over again, the Bible uses the picture of marriage to talk about how he relates to his people, to the nation of Israel, to the church. And when you look at it in that light, God has had the worst, longest, bad marriage in the history of the world. And yet, God always pursues, always remains faithful. He will never divorce us as his people and yet with every marriage that crumbles in our midst, that divine truth becomes a little harder to believe. Dishonesty. You've heard it said, what's a little lie? Or in every contract, every promise, make sure you give yourself a way out. Commit, but never really commit. But I tell you, Jesus says, let your word always be true. Don't worry about saying things like, I swear, I cross my heart and hope to die, or even I promise. Just do what you say all the time, and you won't have to worry about it. So thanks, Jesus. That's easy enough. Two more. Retaliation. You've heard it said, revenge is sweet, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this, what Jesus is saying here, it's less about self-defense and more about revenge. And these last two examples are similar. So let's put them together. You see the next one is hatred. You've heard it said, and all of us have, right, that love your neighbors, of course. Be kind to those who are like you and at least tolerate or, or coexist with everyone else. And then you can do that and feel like a super loving person, to say, look how, look how loving I am. Look at me. I, I love everyone who acts like me, who votes like me, who speaks the same language as me, and, and who loves me back. Wow. I'm awesome. I mean, Jesus says, of course, everybody does that. Everybody loves people who are easy to love. So don't think you're doing some great thing when you just love people who are easy to love. Try this, Jesus says. Try loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute. If you want to find out if you're a loving person... How do you feel about the friend who stabbed you in the back or who's let you down? How do you talk about those who are seeking to remove religious freedoms? Do you pray for ISIS? Do you pray for those who are in the political party that opposes yours? 
Do you actually seek the good of the person that you just can't stand? Now, I know a lot of you don't have that person in your life, but imagine if you had someone in your life who you just couldn't stand, would you actually seek their good? That's when you begin to find out if you're really a loving person. And at this moment in the sermon, you can actually sort of picture people who have been gathered around Jesus listening to this, sort of laughing and having a stunned look on their face and starting to walk away and say, Jesus, this is, this is just too much. And sort of Jesus saying to those who are left in the crowd, I mean, I could do this all day, folks. Give, just keep throwing rules out. And I'll keep showing you how I bring the true interpretation, the, the depth of the heart to this. So how, how are we doing as church? How are we feeling? Because this is how Jesus concludes in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now I know that some of you hear those words and you think there's no way I'm doing any of this. Uh, there's no way I'm following this Jesus. If this is who Jesus really is, if this is the actual Jesus of the New Testament, then I, I'm, I'm out. And like the crowds, you're sort of mentally making your way to the door. And listen, I, I understand that because this isn't easy. Jesus does make everything harder. And maybe others of you are, are hearing this and you're just, you're just feeling guilty. And you're thinking, oh man, I, I need to stop I need to stop yelling at my kids. I need to treat my, my clients better. I need to, to stop reading those, those trashy novels. I need to protect my marriage. I, I need to tell the truth and love my enemies. And I, and, and, and we, this is me, we resort to kind of self-improvement strategies. Add a few more rules to protect us from breaking the big rules. Grit our teeth and to try harder. Which isn't the wrong response. Not totally. I mean, we do need to change. That's right. But attacking the symptoms, it, it, it won't cure the disease. And here's why. These things that Jesus lists, anger, lust, divorce, hatred, those aren't your biggest problem. Not ultimately. Because that'd be way too easy just to do some behavior modification. No, it's your heart. It's my heart. It's killing me. You see, all of those things that Jesus lists, those are just signs that deep down we don't really want anything to do with God. We don't really want him. That, that we think if we can just appease him by obeying a few rules, then, then he'll leave us alone and let us do what we like. But that approach to God will kill you. Because it's not about keeping rules, it's about having a relationship with him. And that's how Jesus makes everything harder. He isn't changing God's laws, he's simply applying them where they've always belonged, right to our hearts. And the problem is, is that my heart is ugly. And yet we honestly think that a few little sort of tweaks and adjustments to our behavior will, will fix us. So I'll do better next time. I, after all, I have a good heart. But have you ever noticed that when we use that phrase, a good heart, it's almost always in the context of someone doing something terrible. You can almost sort of hear like Hitler's grandma saying, oh, that Adolf, but he's got a good heart. Right? That's how we, you know, they do bad things. But after all, he, he has a good heart. 
And it's, it's like when a celebrity or a politician or pastor gets caught doing something wrong and, and so they apologize. And, and how many times have we heard them say something like, well, that just wasn't me. Because the real them would, would never do something like that. But, but if it wasn't you, who, like, who was it? Because <laughs> you are you. Which means that we don't just need new and better rules. Because whatever, whenever we do something wrong, that, that thing lived in our hearts before it lived anywhere else. We don't just need new and better rules. We need new and better hearts. You see, Jesus makes everything harder, but this is also how he makes everything better. And if you're his, if you've trusted him, if you're a follower of Jesus right now, he's in the process of making you into the kind of person who can actually begin to live this out. Now, you actually may not want him to do that work yet, but he's going to do it, and he is in the process of doing it. C.S. Lewis describes how we often come to Jesus to fix our marriage or to, to help us with, with our family or to help us connect with our job or, or to stop an embarrassing habit or sin. And to put it bluntly, we just come to Jesus to make us feel better about ourselves as a sort of a means of self-help. But Lewis writes this. He says, Jesus will come and he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. Make no mistake. He says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for, nothing less. And he gives this great metaphor of a house. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, run down, beat up, and you, you sort of ask him to, to put a fresh coat of paint on and fix the roof, and he does all that stuff, and you sort of knew those things needed to be done. But then he starts tearing down walls and adding new levels and a wings and a courtyard, and, and all of it hurts terribly. And Lewis writes, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And the job will not be completed in this life, but he means to get us as far as possible before death. And so just begin to imagine a community, a community that is free from anger, and not just murder, but free from all that internal and external pain. A community free from lust, uh, not just lust, but any exploitation of another human being, and intimacy, true intimacy and pleasure and delight that we were created for. A community of people whose marriages last, a community of people who mean what they say always and follow through always, where revenge is dead and everyone, even the hated, are loved. And that's a community of salt and light. That's the kind of community that becomes a city on a hill. And so how do we do that? How do we become that kind of community? Well, this morning, there's, this is a lifelong project, right? But there, here's three, three beginning steps. First, I think we, we've got to admit how wrong we usually are. To, to stop making excuses, to stop telling ourselves, well, I've, I do some bad things, but I've got a good heart. Because Jesus began his ministry back in Matthew chapter 3, with a really short, simple sermon, and that sermon was repent. Saying the only way to really make progress in life is to turn around and go back the other way, to admit that you're wrong, 
and to follow Christ. And it's not just the starting point of the Christian life, but it's the daily posture of everyone who believes. And Jesus began his ministry with that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Second, focus more on your heart than on your behavior. Second, focus more on your heart than your behavior. Because behavior matters, and and I'm not minimizing that at all. So if you can help begin change your behavior by putting a filter on your internet or by exercising more to relieve stress so you're not such an angry person, do those things. That's great. But don't ever deceive yourself into thinking that that ultimately solves the problem. Because your heart is where it lives. So focus on your heart. How do you do that? How do you actually begin to focus on your heart? Well, this is where the spiritual disciplines come in. It's where life in the yoke, reading your Bible, prayer, solitude, fasting, service, generosity, fellowship. The yoke is this picture that Jesus is going to give us later on in Matthew chapter 11 where he invites us to learn from him. An easy way to begin that, if you want to begin reading your Bible more regularly, is you can go on our, our website and just click on, there's a button that says open here. And just put in your email address and we'll send you a chapter of the Bible to read today and the rest of the community is reading along with you in those chapters. Now again, there, there's no, nothing magical about those activities. There, there's certainly no quick fixes. But they simply put us in a place where God can begin to work on our hearts because the gospel that Jesus offers, the good news that Jesus offers, is not a gospel of sin management. It's not a gospel of just modifying your behavior. It's actually a gospel of transformation, of bringing new life. And then finally and most importantly, cling to Jesus, our only hope. Because that's why the disciplines work. The disciplines are simply an act of clinging, of reminding yourself of who Jesus is and all that he's done and taking the gospel and rooting it deep in your heart so that it actually becomes more and more alive and aligned and organized around what Jesus loves. For C.S. Lewis put it, and if you'll allow me at least one more Lewis quote, at least least for this Sunday. Um, Lewis says, The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor does it command to do the impossible. Jesus is going to make us into creatures who can actually obey that command. Do you believe that? The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we're in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. And Jesus is the one who is making us holy. He is the one who makes us perfect. He's the only one who truly lived this life, obeyed every rule, and not just on the surface, not just externally, but in the heart. And that's part of what he means when he says he fulfilled the law. And because of his death on the cross, he makes a trade with us that all of our failure, all of our inability, all of our sin, all of our hearts that are just oriented in in opposition to God, he suffers for all of that. And in return, he, he gives to us, he places all of his goodness, his obedience, his righteousness, he, he, he trades that for us, that he gets, that we get our heart from him, this new heart, this new life. And he rose against so that we can actually begin to live this life now. This isn't a life that just happens someday after we die and we're in the new heavens and the new earth. It actually comes forward to us now. We can begin to live this. That you can begin even today to be this kind of person, that we can begin to be that kind of community. He will do it.
John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, also penned this short poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but give us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let me say that again. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that for every one of us in this room, wherever we're at on our, on our journey, whether we've trusted Christ or we haven't trusted Christ, would you begin to warm our hearts in fresh ways and perhaps the first time to the good news of the gospel that doesn't heap a heavy load that's impossible to bear but actually transforms us into the kind of people who can delight to obey. Would we never confuse the gospel and religion? Would we never confuse religion that says, if I do all the right things, then I'll be accepted? But would we cling to the gospel that says, I'm accepted in Christ, and therefore I'm being made into a person who can actually obey? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.